0: Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. Every so often we get a guest that exemplifies authenticity, intelligence, and a great sense of humor. That guest this week is Keir Wenham Flat, and he's been a strength coach for over a decade. And while he's learned a ton over the years, he's still finding ways to optimize his time and his connection with his athletes, particularly the pros. One visit to his Instagram page and you'll get a refreshing and hilarious insight into his coaching ethos. Here it is, episode 584.
1: Okay, all right, so let's get into this. Hey guys, welcome to the premier podcast of Strength Edition, Power of the Radio.
0: I'm John Welborn, I'm joined by Mr. McQuokin. All right, and we got an awesome guest. Here we connected through pal TK, Terrence Kennel, he... uh yeah y'all were stopping through Austin, Texas and you had the opportunity, drop it on HQ, bang some weights, and then we've run into each other at the the old conference circuit and I'm excited to to get you on man cuz you're on a tear on social. Probably my favorite follow at this point when it comes to more than Travis Scott. Strength and conditioning oh, means Okay. And just fucking drop in knowledge, dude. You're an, you're an entertaining dude and you you got a world of experience. Pun intended for all the the uh, travel and coaching opportunities that you've had. So outside of the Instagram man at rugby underscore strength underscore coach underscore no, Uh, introduce yourself to our audience, man. We're gonna hit the ground running and we'll talk professional athletes. We'll talk conditioning tests. We'll uh, we'll explore a lot of avenues today.
2: So I mean, currently I'm full time with Strength Coach Network. So we kind of specialize in education for field sport specialists in strength and conditioning. Um, trying to, to plug the, the numerous gaps that we think exist between education, accreditation, and what you actually need to be good at. Mm-hmm. But uh, prior to that, I was uh, a strength coach in professional and international rugby for about 10 years in five different countries. And then I decided, right, enough of this. I want to work in the NFL. And I came to America four years ago this week. And as we discussed off air, I promptly uh, found out I was having a child. And um, yeah, that basically set in motion a series of events where pretty much 14, 15 months ago, it it was like, right, good coach, good parent, make a choice. And here I am.
1: Sweet, man. So which one did you choose?
2: I'm trying to to be a good parent. Whether I, I will, I be I know. I'm kidding,
1: dude. I, I just was uh, <laughs> putting you on the spot a little bit. No, I mean it's it's difficult to be a tough parent. Or I'm just telling you, when uh, even if you're married and you know everybody lives in the home and there's no turmoil or everything, it's still difficult to be a parent. So I can't yeah. imagine all the other extraneous circumstances applying to that. So good on you for uh, for for fighting that fight, dude. It's I'm I'm very lucky. I have an amazing wife and three wonderful kids, and it's a struggle every single day. Like I dealt with uh, before 8 a.m. There were, I can't find my socks. There were tears. I don't want to go to school. I think I have COVID. No, my nose is running. Is it because I'm not wearing socks and this is all before like 7.50 and then we're in the car and I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> oh, this parenting thing, the things they didn't tell you.
0: Yeah. And strength strength coach network, let's kick off there. Okay. And this is where most of your time and effort is going into. And what was the origin of this? Because there, there's an infinite number of online education opportunities. There's a lot of high power in governing bodies within the industry. But then you still chose to essentially stand up for the coach and empower their performance and education.
2: The short answer is poverty. So I, I started working for myself. I managed to time my graduation from college perfectly to coincide with the, the recession in 08. So I effectively was forced. I was forced to work for myself from the very beginning and I I started out private sector, personal training. Then in 2010, I got my start in professional rugby and I realized when you look at me, I don't look like an Instagram model. The only credibility I have is in working with rugby athletes, speaking about rugby, all that kind of stuff. That's the environment I work in. So for a number of years, it was rugby focused products and services for players and then you realize that it's actually a horrible market to try and serve because the way that pro sport works in europe is if you are an elite level youth athlete you know you're going to make it you get it for free if you're an elite level adult pro you get it for free or you're not going to spend any money on yourself and if you're An amateur, you know you're not going to make it, so you don't care. So there's this real short window of people that think they're on the cusp. They're going to spend money. They're really serious about it, and it's seasonal. So then I actually just naturally gravitated towards coach education because I think that's a little bit better market to serve. It's year-round. There's more, more motivation to get ahead and invest in yourself, as you guys know. And then it got to a point where, you know, three, four years ago, I looked at the membership and I realized, hang on, 75% of our members have nothing to do with rugby. We're in, I think it's like 35 to 40 different countries. So that's when I decided right now is the time to to cast the net a little bit wider and broaden it out to strength coaches everywhere. So that's how I kind of got to serving that market. But then the reason for it is, is you see certainly in the UK and you, you do see it in North America as well. Your, your experience is more than mine, but you see all of these people coming off the, the conveyor belt. They have the CSCCA, CSCS, whatever. They have their degree and they're terrible. So would any of us have a problem going to, for example, a dentist's office and having it, uh, a filling done by a recent graduate in dentistry? assuming they were supervised you'd be like yeah this this person is going to be qualified to be able to do the job i want them to do the fact that we can't answer that question with yes in a far lower stakes simpler environment like sport to me is like a big indictment of accreditation and education and typically i think what it comes down to is there's a little bit of a lack of skin in the game of people that are educating Coaches or those who aspire to be coaches. So, TK had a story where after he interned for me in Tokyo, he went to do his master's degree in uh, London. And there was a lecturer that told him with a straight face, This guy's never worked in elite level track and field. He said, Yeah, if you gave me Usain Bolt based on this research, I could make him even faster, which is just a ludicrous statement. So, the way I phrase the question to people is if you wanted to make a million bucks tomorrow, Would you go to your local economics professor or would you go to the small business owner that built and sold a business for a million dollars? And that's a little bit lacking. Yeah. It's a little bit lacking in education where you've got people that have never worked in a particular environment or earned their living, getting results, telling those who aspire to how to do it. And that's the gap we're trying to fill.
0: Yeah. It always fascinates me. The uh, essentially done the internship process and train and some of those dudes that are entering into that opportunity and you just hold your breath a little bit. Okay. Good luck, buddy. Um, but, but yeah, man, this, it essentially aligned a with the mission in the sense, and some of our education is geared towards that practical sense. And it's not essentially what, you know, it's how you're able to communicate that and apply it. And a yeah. big mission in line with the power athlete Academy and the strength coach network aligns very well.
1: I always think too, I mean, uh, so much what the NSCA does and not to knock them because I think they do a good job in some ways. Uh, but a lot of this stuff's theoretical and a lot of it's written from a certain pr- perspective and it's kind of training agnostic. So a lot of these guys come in and they're like, uh, okay, I have this degree I know all this information. How do I actually action it to elicit a response? And I think
0: that's where like the mentorship piece becomes so important. Kira, take us to y- your origins in in coaching within the, the North American realm. So at the college level, like from your experience and then entering into that that model, that system, that approach, what were some of the just moments where you're like, what is going on here? Power Athlete Nation I want to take one minute to remind you why Power Athlete is performance for the people. We love the garage gym or we love the athlete that is taking their performance into their own hands. We offer eight different strength and conditioning programs reverse engineered from common goals like getting jacked, becoming more athletic, or introducing the barbell for the first time. To learn which program is best for you, head to PowerAthleteHQ.com training. If you're an enthusiast, a parent, or a professional coach, we also offer education. At academy.PowerAthleteHQ.com, learn the method to the madness, the Power Athlete methodology, and a hell of a lot more. Next up, shop.powerathletehq.com. Hoodies, tees, sweats, shorts, you name it, we got it, including posters. You put this up in your garage gym, you're staring at it underneath the bar. I guarantee that you're going to add 10% to your next rep max. And finally, you can check us out on YouTube. We're dropping movement demonstrations going through our setup and execution of the finer movements found on all of our power athlete training programs and cutting and clips of this podcast that you're listening to right now. So if you want to share in this experience with your lifting buddies, go ahead, seek out power athlete on YouTube and now back to the premier podcast in strength and conditioning. Hey,
2: hey. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's fundamentally corrupt <laughs> to, to, you know, not to be too blunt. I mean, there's like, there's so many angles you can approach it from, but I think it's one of those things where if you imagine there are other fields, right. Where if you were a a stockbroker or a, or a trader, you're going to be judged on profit and loss. You can be a dick to everyone else, but if you make the company millions of dollars every single year, you're probably going to get retained and promoted. And if you're the nicest guy in the world and you lose the company money, every single year, you're going to get fired. So the, the, the easier it becomes to point to your contribution and demonstrate, Hey, I'm moving the needle in this organization. I deserve to be here. It's a more pure evaluation in my opinion, but then if you ask the average strength coach or the average group of strength coaches and say, right, define exactly what it is you do that's quantifiable and point to your contribution in this organization. And it's just, it's, it's one of the facts of strength and conditioning. It's extremely murky. Nobody's an Island. You can have sport coaches and ATCs that make you look like a genius or the reverse and the same works for for you and them. So in reality, there's nothing that you can really point to that's your own and say, well, this is mine. I deserve this pay. I'm, I'm saving you this amount of money every single year. And as a result, it becomes more about being liked by those in positions of power than it is pointing to your quantifiable difference that you make. Because when you can't do that, it just becomes a, a case of, well, well, we think he's good. And That's where you get the, the alignment, for example, between head coaches and, and strength coaches. If you understand that fact implicitly or explicitly, you suddenly become incentivized to keep that person happy And for them to like you more than to tell them the truth. Given that your, your job security is going to hinge upon it. Um, And then if you, if you look at what most institutions aspire to, they want, they say they want a high performance model, which is athlete gets put at the, the, the center of everything. If it moves the organization closer towards winning, we do it. If it doesn't, we get rid of it high performers get retained and promoted low performers get removed from the organization it's great to say that but then the reality and the cost of making the decisions associated with that most organizations don't have the appetite for and uh, that was my experience of it
0: Uh, what is that cost just simply salaries just having five coaches and that's too much
1: well, don't, don't you think in professional sports, people are really just searching. Like, I mean, you get to a certain point and I imagine there's like uh, the echo chamber where you're just like want people that give you the information that you want to hear. Like, I, I can't imagine the Nick Sabans of the world are wanting to bring in a strength coach. It's like, no, 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 you're not doing this right or kind of brings them in something. I'm sure they just hire people that implement the system they want and are really good at holding, you know, getting people back so that we don't get a uh, on the field penalties in professional in football. I, I like that's why you know, strength coaches get dealt the card of being the get back coach. Can I don't know, you part? guys, might, yeah, no, I mean, you but, guys? It, uh, but that becomes like a uh, real like, what are you know, like, uh, you make a great point. Like, uh, are they searching for a high performance model or they just want somebody that keeps the machine running and tells them what they want to hear? And I think uh, these yeah. guys get to a certain point where, like, that's what they want, you know, and, and yeah. uh, in professional sports, especially here in America. The, the trick is just to get sign the, you know, best athletes you can, you know, and, uh, like any, any NFL strength coach that tells you that they develop people is high. I mean, the biggest deal in the NFL strength coach is don't get people hurt. Don't put a system that puts guys at risk. Like make sure that they're fit enough and just strong enough to so that they can get on the field and perform and don't fucking hurt them. Strength coach that gets people hurt, they get fired. So, I mean, there's kind of this balance between, I'm sure Canadian, now these other guys would argue with me. Like, they want to develop people, but they're not going to develop people at the point of maybe potentially getting them hurt. The number one thing is do no harm. Make sure they're there on Sunday to play.
2: Yeah. And, you know, the, the other problem is, is, like, as well, when strength coaches get hired, it's hired by head football coaches, administrators, and whoever else. So fundamentally, you're being hired by people that don't have the qualification to tell good from bad. So then it just becomes that kind of, like, vicious circle of, you, you almost look to other people. Well, what did they do? What did they do? And then you just copy that behavior and hire a, a similar coach in that vein. So that, I think that's the problem where if you've ever heard of uh, James Smith, he wrote this book called The Governing Dynamics of Coaching. And he basically makes the case that you can only correct sideways or downwards in an organization. So ultimately, you need the head coach to have sufficient knowledge to know that he's making or she is making a good pick in terms of the strength coach. But then the owner... Well, the the GM needs to have the sufficient knowledge of what makes a good head coach to select them. And then the owner has to know what makes a good GM and so on. So if the fish rots from the head down, if the people at the top don't have the the knowledge or the qualification to make objective decisions, everything thereafter becomes a problem.
0: Well, I could definitely agree with all that. I think plenty of examples in the NFL. Yeah. We look at the Houston Texans right now.
1: Well, I mean, uh, just because somebody has the money to buy a team doesn't necessarily or necessarily grant them the wisdom and the intelligence to actually win football games. And we've seen this over and over again. Uh, the owners that are most successful find somebody who's extremely knowledgeable in every aspect of this and then allow them to run the ship and step away. I.e., like look at Jerry Jones. What the fuck does Jerry Jones know about football? Ask him. He probably knows fucking everything. But, uh, you know, I mean, there's a guy who it's a, it's a lot about him. And, you know, he brought in uh, Mike McCarthy, who's, you know, was in within Green Bay and the way that thing runs. I mean, so it's pretty interesting that I think if these guys want to be successful as owners, they find really good football people and let them do what they want to do. And then they just show up on Sunday and wave a little flag. I mean, look at the Dan Snyder's. Like, what more of a train wreck in a fucking cesspool is that organization? And it's, it comes from the top down. He said it rots from the head down. That fucking organization. And I think I read, uh, recently, it was probably last week, there was a article in one of the magazines that talked about this guy should be, have his franchise stripped for not only the bullshit, the cheapness, the way he's run this thing, but they should vote this fucking guy out and get rid of him and sell his franchise for just being a shitty
0: owner. Callback. He also owns Astro World. Travis Scott. Just, it's just Please. saying. Oh,
1: really? Oh, yeah. So About he ba- six flags.
0: So he's basically Travis Scotting the reds. The Redskins. Excuse me. The Washington Football Team. Well, did they get a new name yet? No, I think he's just sticking with the WFT
1: to stick it to the NFL. The WFT, the Washington Football Team. Uh, that's funny. I, yeah, but I mean that dude. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, I don't know if you've seen that the Denver Broncos are coming up for sale. And Peyton Whoa. Manning and his brother are vying to be, you know, with John Elway to become and owners. Papa John's? Uh, dude, uh, there was a pretty interesting point that the Manning brothers never took a cut in salary because they've always been had this idea that they were going to war chest money to become NFL owners. And now they put together uh-huh. a group with Elway. And like, if Peyton and his brother and Elway go in and buy the Denver Broncos, I got to think they got a pretty good chance. I mean, there's three pretty good football minds now. There's three egos and nobody's ego is bigger. I than, don't
0: think, I mean, than Elway's. Yeah. I think Elway's got the biggest because Peyton and Eli, they make fun of themselves. Yeah. No, often. Well, well, they have self-deprecating humor and I, I personally know
1: Peyton and Peyton's a good fucking dude. Like, uh, you can't, like, I've never heard anybody say, I hate Peyton Manning. The only people that say that are people that played against him when he torched him. He's a fucking great guy and his brother's a good dude too. So, uh, Elway on the other hand, holy shit, dude.
0: megalomaniac of the highest order. But maybe that's what you need to win in professional sports. What? So- Yeah, Kier, take us take us into winning. So you've multiple sports, different countries, a vast number of experience. Like, what are some commonalities between winning teams that you've seen in your experience?
2: I should say that most of the winning has been me watching other people win. Like, I'm I'm not going to gild the lily. Like when we I was with Argentina, I think I. It arrived the the second or third year that they joined the Southern Hemisphere Championship. So that you end up just by accident playing number one, two and three in the world twice a year, every year. And we were 0 and 17 for the first three years, one of which I was not there for. So you get to see a lot of winning when other people are doing it to you. But then, you know, I was lucky enough in in Tokyo to, to work with four All Blacks that won the World Cup. Obviously, everyone loves to talk about legacy in the book and that was honestly one of the reasons that I went to Japan was to work with those guys and try and you know observe them for a couple of years and get an idea of it but I think when I've worked in good organizations I think there is a real clear sense of mission so everybody knows what it is they're there to do and every decision gets passed through that lens so for us it was is the decision that we're about to make right now going to move us closer towards winning the World Cup or further from? And if it was yes, we did it. And if the answer was no, contrast that to say uh, college. It would be like okay, is this going to help us win a championship? And you say yes to go do it. And say oh, what about this? What about the student experience? What about our relationship with this uh, sport coach? What about revenue? What about this? What about that? So it's when when you get you're making a millimeter of progress in a million different directions, but as opposed to just going all out in one direction, I think that's one thing. Um, I, I feel like, as you mentioned, when you, you agree with people beforehand, here's the stuff that you're responsible for, and you have the authority to match it because there's nothing worse than being, being told this is your fault, but then knowing that you didn't have the ability to control that outcome. So re- responsibility and authority together Focus metrics. Here's how we're going to measure you, and then you're evaluated on those criteria. What tends to happen, especially in college, is I say, right, here's the thing that we're going to judge you about. Then when they want to get rid of you, it's like, well, here's a few other reasons. You know, the athletes don't like the sessions, the sport coach doesn't like you, and so on. But on the front end, you get told you're going to be judged on wins and losses and injury rate, for example. Um, it does help, I think, when you're in an organisation where. There are no really poisonous characters. I'll say that not everyone has to love each other. There are going to be relationships within teams where people don't like each other, but if they can put that to one side and concentrate on the the objective, that's okay. But it's even better when, you know, everyone gets on with one another. And then the thing I noticed about the All Blacks is they weren't the biggest, strongest, fastest, fittest. They were all good. But they were all obsessed with the game. They were all PhDs and just the, the fundamentals. That was the thing that really impressed me with those guys.
1: Yeah, let me ask you about that. I mean, it's such an interesting phenomenon, I'm sure. I mean, dude, books have been written on this, volumes of about the All Blacks and the fact that, like, here's this little country of New Zealand that – Consistently has put out like the highest performers in terms of this rugby. And these guys are, you know, not only do they go, uh, you know, have left and gone into the world stage, but guys will leave and they're still the most dominant player. What is it about uh, New Zealand or more importantly, like the the culture of the All Blacks that necessitates that? Because, uh, I mean, you you brought it up a little bit like a, a, you know, super high level of understanding of the game that only really happens from playing the game from probably, you know, this tall. Yeah. So I mean, but they kind of grow up into this, and there's like a culture associated with it where like, this is who we are, this is what we do, and if you can come play for the All Blacks, you've reached you know the highest pinnacle of service for New Zealand and be able to re- represent I mean it's uh it's pretty neat to see and uh, mm. to see a country of that size that's so dominant on the world stage
2: Yeah, I mean so that that country is four million people, which is incredible when you think about the level of dominance that they've had. I think their win rate ever is 75% and a, a bad year for them is two losses out of around 13 14 games. People that read legacy think it's one way that they they're picking these the Angels best behavior, tons of integrity stuff like that. I have to say, they're as bad behaved as all other professional athletes. New <laughs> Zealand has the second worst alcohol culture of any nation I've in, encountered. Um, What's the first? Japan
1: Japan, Japan
2: yeah. by far. Oh my god! The Japanese yeah. are
1: terrible drinkers, awful drinkers.
2: Yeah. The, every, everyone thinks the Japanese are like super respectful, introverted, or oh, the funny Hello Kitty people. Once you get um, them drunk, it is yeah. like fucking bomb going off.
1: Yeah, no, and they they have a. I mean, they do have a really strong alcohol culture. Like I remember we were in Japan. Like, there were whiskey bars, I mean, wine bars, like... Uh, and, Soju? Or is that only Korea? Uh, yeah, I think I might only be Korean. But I was amazed at the amount of bars, like... Uh, and somebody tried to tell me that there were more bars in, like, Osaka than there were in Dublin. And I'm like, there's no fucking way. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean, but there's a lot of... If you want to get a drink in Japan, it's pretty easy to do it.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, it's not, it's not the... Uh, it's not what people think is culture, what it is, I remember speaking to um, to one of the boys and he ended up playing 50-something times for New Zealand and he probably would have played 100 times for any other country. They said the way it works is well, when you're established, that shirt is yours. If you have a long-term injury or something comes up, you get one more chance to get it back. That's it. The, the, the policy was you're going to have one chance to win your shirt back. If you can't do it, you're basically, you're gone. So I coached another guy that he he managed a time winning the World Cup just as he came up. He managed fifteen games for New Zealand, and here's another guy. If he played for England, hundred caps easy. So there's this outrageous culture of of competition, and specifically because it's small, they they don't let anyone get above their station. So you you know people talk about well you, you could play for the All Blacks, but you could go to the the pub where you live and they they just treat you normally because it's like it's almost like a small town mentality and as you mentioned it's it's the culture of sport so James Smith again said basically all you need to to win long-term in sport is culture you don't need to be trained to to qualify to play at a certain level but if you incentivize them enough with money and you have a strong enough culture that that sport attracts the best athletes It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy where you end up being uh, one of the best. So in New Zealand, if you play for the All Blacks, you belong in the population of, without question, the best athletes in that country by far. In England, if you play rugby, it's probably because you couldn't get tempted or you weren't good enough to play in the EPL. So what tends to be the dominant sport in each of these countries Attracts the best athletic talent. So, if you're from Eastern Europe or Central Asia, you're going to be a wrestler or a weightlifter. If you're in Japan, you're going to play baseball. If you're in New Zealand, you are going to be a rugby player. So, you're getting the the best of the best of the best of a few different factors that kind of come together.
1: Yeah, I mean, in uh, four billion people, I mean, r- roughly Southern California, I think Orange County, LA, is more than is almost four million, if not three and a half. So, I mean, you're talking about a country roughly the size of like not even all of Southern California. Yeah always pretty well but yeah that's uh it's true i mean in in this country if uh you're a big dude that can move fast you go play in in the nfl or uh if you're super tall you go play in the nba i mean it's it's pretty interesting you see like the rise of just different professional sports and then in new zealand i mean it's what you got if you can do it you go and play for the all blacks yeah.
0: sports teen book it's like if you are a man over seven feet in the united states there's like 33 percent chance of being in the nba that's
1: dude my favorite is. is meeting dudes that are seven
0: feet that don't play in the nba and you're like that fucking they, sucks well we got a tall guy block one coach Yeah, he's, he's he's up there and we ask him and he's he's so disappointed he's probably terrible at basketball
1: uh, who is that uh it's it's one I of the old tall guy yeah well no, it's it, jeff it, it, jeff sears yeah that's right it was yeah. uh
0: it's always funny for
1: me to be around somebody taller than me i'm like is this what everybody feels like oh my god
0: yeah, always looking down on me, John. <laughs> Son of a bitch. The, uh, Tokyo, 29,000 bars. That's in Tokyo. In Tokyo. That's the most in the world. Next yeah. up, Buenos Aires.
2: Uh, the, uh, Yakuza bars, too.
0: Ah. Uh, uh, n- number two is, uh, Bogata. Bogata? I don't know what that is. Bogota. Oh, Bogota. Number Bog-
1: three, Bogata. Oh, Bogata. Number three is Buenos Aires. <laughs> <laughs> Bo- where's this Bogota? Bodega place Bodega. Bogota
0: I'm going to go there uh Seoul Seoul 18000 so Tokyo Seoul Bodegata. Bogota Bogota Where's that
1: uh Colombia mm. mm Yeah lots of bars in Japan uh like when that guy told me there were more bars in Osaka than in Dublin I was like there's no fucking way The Irish like I mean I saw beer fest they're like oh yeah we're pretty good drinkers we just beat the Irish there was no Japanese in Beer Fest, was there? Ooh, I got to,
0: got to go back and do some research. So, well, yeah. And I mean, now, so what was the, the, that had to be a jump ship to go to Japan to coach. Like that's a risk. Not a lot of Americans are willing to take is to leave the country and the safe hold of this system to potentially be forgotten in their coaching careers. Like, what was that, man? Just wholesale investing in yourself.
2: Oh, no, they, they paid me a lot of
0: money. <laughs> uh,
1: the yeah. Japanese got cash. Uh, I'm, I'm always amazed that um, in terms of sport, rugby is extremely uh, like a huge sport in Japan. So, I mean, like a lot of guys go, like I forgot what the league is, but I, I mean, I know that a lot of like expats go to Japan and especially strength coaches. So it's pretty interesting when you said baseball, but also Japan. What other sports are pretty prevalent there?
2: Um. Well, to to give you the background, it's kind of weird because, you know, the, they, they call it the big eight. So England, Scotland, Ireland, Wales, France, New Zealand, South Africa, Australia. Some of those Celtic nations you could probably swap out for like Argentina. Those countries by far have the most uh, popular professional leagues, especially France. And there's, there's the money to back it up. So in terms of total money, France is probably the best league. But in all of those countries, the club is the business. So whatever the, the the business makes, the players are going to get a portion of that. The difference is in Japan, all of the clubs are owned by multinational corporations. So I've worked for the Toshiba Corporation. And when I was there, they sold just a piece of their business for $18 billion. So it's easy for them to, you know, convince four all blacks, Hey, come over here and, and play rugby. And, you know, uh, the, the best guys that I work with were getting about a million dollars after tax a year, which in rugby terms is crazy. So that's, that's why they're able to spend uh, so much money. So rugby, uh, baseball, they have a corporate league, uh, basketball, baseball is obviously the most popular rugby is really growing in popularity because, There was a game at the 2015 World Cup. So historically, Japan had never won a World Cup game before. And they played South Africa, who at the time were number two in the world. And Japan ended up beating them. And it was such a big deal that they made a four TV movie about this. And then I want to say several million people in Japan watched that game in the middle of the night. And then the guy that kicked the winning goal, I heard when I was in Tokyo, he was doing 300k a month in just endorsements. So it's it's starting to to get a little bit of momentum, but it's it's weird. I'd say baseball, soccer, rugby, sumo is more one of those. It's more of a, a tradition and a pastime, but it, it gets a lot of TV coverage. And it's it's crazy. I went there one time. It's pretty interesting. It's also very very corrupt with the yakuza.
0: Oh, yeah,
1: yeah I heard no, about that yeah. The um, when I was in Japan, the uh, the sword maker that we that we went and met uh, the Kanafusi Fujiwara, Uh, he makes all the blades uh, or they make the blades for like the, uh, Yakuza guys to cut their fingers off. And then they also make like when the sumo guys win, like their super tournament, they give them a sword. So they make those swords as well too. So he was huge into sumo and talked about like the betting and like the, the way it's controlled. It's pretty interesting. So super neat. Mm -hmm. Like the fact that, uh, like those guys do it and like their training. I mean, it's, it's pretty wild too to see because when we were, um, I forgot where we were. We were somewhere in the city and we got we got on a bus and there were some like young sumo dudes that were like dressing traditional stuff that were like out getting food. Well size give us the size. So you're six six. Oh uh, six two. Maybe these guys were probably like two sixty, two fifty. So that you could tell they were pretty young, maybe like, you know, under twenty. And like I like I think they, they have to apprentice somehow. And basically they're like basically just go get food and help those guys wipe their asses, I'm sure. <laughs> Uh, but, yeah, there's, like, a whole weird sumo academy, and there's a, it's pretty interesting if you delve into it. It's pretty true.
0: Maybe one day. Yeah, one day. The When you mentioned the, the corporate leagues here, we visited Seoul for a couple seminars and naturally went to a baseball game. Like, we're, we're teaching the U.S. I'm going to your local game. But, uh, man, it was hilarious. This loss in translation between United States baseball and, and, and we saw, like, the Mitsubishi. So, like, they were sponsored by – Mitsubishi yeah. against some other company, and it was awesome. Uh, there was it was no respect for the game, no quiet. It was like yell leaders and drums, similar to soccer, it, yeah. the whole game. And then the, where I laughed the hardest, seventh inning stretch. So the fans were still getting rough and rowdy, but the players, both teams, went out to the the infield together and stretched and stretched. And then we saw a couple dudes just smoking cigarettes, and I'm like, this is hilarious. I always thought the seven thing stretch was for the fans. I know, but they they stretch lost in translation.
1: Oh, I
0: get it. I get it. That's yeah, great. It hilarious. Great time. Nice. Well, uh, I do want to get into some of the things that you you want, use your platform in aiming to empower. I mean, speed ladders, sand pits, all these different gimmicks and tools that coaches are are talked into purchasing or showing their sport coach everybody knows that the speed
1: ladder is the single greatest way to increase speed it's got it in the name Mm -hmm.
2: (laughs) so you know it's good
1: yeah so that's how you know it's good it's the speed ladder so wouldn't it mean that if you use it
0: but he's not going anywhere yeah but they don't know that and devonta adams just dropped an awesome quote recently i don't know if you saw that (sighs) about speed ladders i'm a big fan that was a good one um his comment was, we just don't do
1: fancy drills for Instagram. We actually go and play football. Yeah,
0: run rounds. So take us into, uh, I mean, intelligently standing up for good, solid training. And then with a, a sense of humor.
2: Yeah, I think I've got it here, actually. I've got this book. It's called Trust Me, I'm Lying. It's by uh, Ryan Holiday, who... I think he's a little, he lays it on thick with stoicism and he's a little bit fake with it, but this book, <laughs> he's actually very, uh, he's very open. It's about how he ended up becoming the, the CMO of American apparel in his early to mid twenties. So it's basically about media manipulation. And one of the harder lessons I think to learn with that is the, the message is worthless if you don't first have the attention to convey it to people, and I think that's as you know you you kind of mentioned it, and I'll I'll, I'll be completely honest. I'm very cynical with it. I I just post like three memes for every educational post because you you get the eyeballs and you get the the attention, and then you you basically earn the right to to try and educate people a little bit. And I think if it if it's dry and it's bland, you can. You can pat yourself on the back for being super serious and having integrity but it's also you're you're not going to convert a lot of people to your way of thinking so that's exactly what i do um and i think i i understand why people do certain things especially in north america because when you're in a sport like football you're you know they they always call the super bowl uh, champions the world champions but really it's it's only you guys that are doing it Oh, I always thought
1: it was uh, disingenuous with that, where it's like world champions. I'm like, well, how come we didn't invite the rest of the world to play? It's just in America. So I think uh, if you go back and you look at the at, at the marketing for the Super Bowl, the way they came up with it all this stuff, they've actually gone back and looked at like why they branded it the way they did. And uh, it looks like a bunch of dudes that were like, fuck it. Who's going to come and challenge it? Because at the time in this like like if you read the history of the first Super Bowl and how it all came about, it's pretty cool. They they've done some documentaries and talked about it, especially with the branding piece. But yeah, I agree with you.
2: So because of that, it it inevitably becomes an echo chamber. So you're not really gonna have as many outside opinions, outside voices, people with different experiences. And of course, we're hardwired to copy what works because when you're two or three years old and you're just going to copy your parents rather than your parents sitting down and be like hey okay here's the reason you do this let me make a rational case for this behavior blah, blah 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 you just copy mom and dad because it works so we're hardwired to do that and there's a very good reason for it it keeps you alive it's got us this far the problem is is when you copy an entire set of behaviors without knowing it, you've adopted the same mistakes and the same errors, and you're going to commit those unless you try and rationalize everything. Not saying you have to, you know, analysis paralysis everything, but I always try and ask myself, first principles, what is it I'm trying to do if I boil it down to its most basic essence, and how does this help me get towards that and question why, 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 why? And there's so many things where... The only possible answer could be you are doing this because the guy that taught you did it, or you did it when you were a player. And then it just gets passed up the chain and really just several generations of, well, this is the way that we've always done it. And if there's been any perspective that I've been able to offer, it's probably as a result of me not coming up in that environment. And of course, I still make, you know, schoolboy errors. Like my assistant had to whisper to me like once, hey, the, the corners and the safeties are both DBs. It's not like separate groups, like shit like that. But there is other stuff that I can uh, provide insight on. And like one of the stories that I love was uh, the English Institute of Sport. They had this guy. His job was just to come up with innovation. He was like the chief innovation officer. And he came into the, the Bob Skeleton, which is like basically this like big – it's kind of like a baking tray and you lay on it and you just fucking fly down a, an ice shoot at like 80 miles an hour face first. And they had this athlete where they they figured out a tenth of a second from the start is like this crazy margin at the end. And if you basically get the start right, you're going to win the gold medal. So this guy came in and he looked at this athlete warming up and he's like, right, oh, okay. She's finished the warm up. And then she walks up and waits for her call and whatever. And there was like 15, 20 minutes where this chick was in spandex in sub zero temperatures. And he's like, why don't you just keep her warm and she's probably going to have a better start. So the only thing that they did was give this chick a reflective, uh, tin tinfoil blanket. And it ended up taking something like two tenths of her start and she won the gold medal. So I think that can reinforce the potential value of outside perspectives. And that, that's what I'm, I think that's what I've been able to bring plus a little bit of messaging and, Yeah, we'll see. Like the tribe test.
0: Exactly. I mean, I'm having fun in in engaging with the the content you're putting out here. Uh, We often see in some of the, I mean, videos passed around, people are inventing, you know, or reinventing Franz Bosch's book. Sure. And uh, just kind of chuckle a little bit. But, uh, I mean, they're doing a great job I re-inventing mean, it for the first time.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, and they, uh, I love like the, the graphs and all the information they do where it's, you read it and you're like, I, like one, I would never even have thought to put a graph of something so ridiculous, but people are doing it and, you know, they're getting followers and people are influenced. I think what happens too is, uh, you move so far down the chain on this stuff that you forget that there's people that are first logging on that have never heard of any of these things. And, uh, you know, things that like when you read it, you're like, well, yeah, I mean, do we, I didn't even know that needed to be said, but a lot of times, I mean, like there's people that are first going to step into their gym that, you know, uh, started lifting weights and all of a sudden, or have this big eye dream of being a strength coach. And there's some guy that that's going to happen to today and somebody tomorrow. And I think a lot of times we just forget that it's like podcasting. Oh, wow. This is your first podcast dude. We've been doing hundreds of these things for years. And so, I mean, there's, uh, I guarantee you today there's going to be some guy who's launching his podcast and this is his very first one.
0: Yeah. Kier, what's what's it called?
1: <laughs> I'm kidding.
2: <laughs> Let me tell you about podcasting, dude, right? So I went to a business event in Sydney. So I, when was I living in Sydney? Seven years ago. I went there. I paid a grand to go to it. And this guy's like, podcasting is the next big thing. Start a podcast today. It's free marketing. And I was like, okay. And I did the shittest podcast of like, oh, tell me how you trained. Tell me how you became a strength coach, blah, 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 blah. At the time, I think I was getting 15,000 unique lists a month, which for that niche is pretty okay. Last year, I'm like, I should probably do a podcast again. I got bored. I put it away and I was like, right, I'm going to do a podcast. I've got all this knowledge. I've got more money behind it. It's going to be higher production values. And you know what? It's not going to be formulaic. I'm going to interview all these really interesting people. So I interviewed a Navy SEAL, a former heroin addict, a guy that, walked away from half a million dollars at Amazon and MMA fighter, all these like interesting people. And I was like, I'm going to let people use their own intelligence. 1000 listeners a month.
1: <laughs> well, the problem was uh, there was probably way less podcasts 15 years ago when you, you know, or years ago. Now it's just, fuck It's So, I mean, even when we look at like the podcast rankings, things that pop up, you're like, never heard of that podcast. So it's pretty yeah. interesting. Like how much more noise, I mean, it feels like, At this point, I mean, when – I like I laugh with uh, Joe Rogan when he first pitched the idea of like, I'm going to invite my friends on. We're going to talk. And people are like, people aren't going to listen to that shit. He's like, I think it's going to be big. And he's grown it into the biggest podcast. Um, But I think people are looking at it and thinking like – I mean, there's just saturation in the market. If I go search for podcasts now, I mean, there's podcast apps and there's all this stuff. I mean, before you physically – like I know for us, you had to come to our website and listen to the podcast on our website on the line on yeah. the line and now we have you know now we're on Spotify there's YouTube I mean there's so many different ways to stream this information so I think it it uh, has definitely uh, you know and then how many people when we go through it listen the first five minutes that's why we usually like to really talk about the real hot stuff like uh, Drake putting hot sauce in a condom in those first
0: couple of minutes and we give them like a little bit of more strength and conditioning later on pun intended. Well, here with that, this is essentially long floor form, informal. This is representative of conversation that we would have in the gym training, for the most part. The this style of learning—it's not necessarily the book; it's not the social media hot clip. Like, is there value from your experience and mentorship, other co- mentoring other coaches? Is there value in this as an educational platform?
2: Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's this, this, I think, you know, to, to go kind of full circle with the education thing, if you look at formalized education and especially higher education, it's a relatively new idea in the span of human history. So if you look at how people learned for literally millennia, it was the apprenticeship model. If you want to learn how to do a certain job, you go find an experienced practitioner in that job and you watch them do it and you you basically glue yourself to their hip for x amount of time and then eventually they'll decide you're uh, you're qualified to do that and i think that's probably what is what is missing in in coaching you do the CSCS and all of a sudden you get to give yourself that label so what is probably missing is that that kind of mentorship and learning in the trenches aspect to to coaching so absolutely yeah
0: I feel like that is so implied. It's assumed, like if we went to the same school as an intern, it's assumed that we took that coach's knowledge. And I, I would disagree with that from experience. Like just because it's the same line, the same school, the same head coach on the the resume does not mean we took away the same things that then empower us. Well, but uh, I mean like professional sports at the end of the day, I mean uh, like he, he made a great
1: point. He's like there's this – Feeling that it's got to be performance driven. But at the end of the day, coaches want to work with people they like and people they know. So like, let's say, for example, you're, um, you know, an intern or an assistant at a major university and there's young coaches who come in the weight room who have similar age, maybe buddies, whatever, you know, they become your friends just because you're around them, you know, and the, like, like I always think like the head coach or like the head strength coach, but it's really the assistants that are the ones that are mingling in that thing. And there's always this kind of like, you know, uh, guys are pretty sharp. And that they kind of assess like, Hey, this guy's, he's young. He's probably going to be a coordinator. He's going to be a head coach one day. And then they just kind of keep friendships. And then the idea is that, Hey, when I get promoted or I get a new job, you're going to be my guy. And that's how this whole thing works. And then people bring in their guy and then, uh, or they come in somewhere and there's another strength coach. And then after a year or two, I need to get my guy in here. And they bring in their guy. And so I think a lot of those relationships are, um, I mean, it's, It's the most incestual thing. If you go back and you look at the NFL in terms of strength coaches and, uh, you know, coordinators and this, I mean, you can tie these guys just back to a few different trees. I mean, the, the, the staff I played on with, with Andy Reid, I mean, um, you know, our quality control guy was Sean McDermott. Uh, Ron Rivera was our linebackers coach. David Petulli was our receivers coach. Uh, um, Steve Spagnola was our DB's coach. Um, you know, and you go through every one of those dudes on that staff, other than just maybe one or two is now gone on to be a head coach and at least a coordinator somewhere else. And what do they do? Hey, uh, you know, I'm Sean McDermott, the quality control guy. Hey, this, this is who my buddy was during, you know, and now all of a sudden I'm a head guy. I'm going to bring in the guy that I feel comfortable with that I've seen work and who I know and who's somebody that I trust. And I think because professional sports becomes so backstab. Uh, you know, and there's so much, you know, money and this and the whole deal that they want guys that they can trust and people they know that'll die on the sword for them. So, um, it's pretty rare that a strength coach or a, that a coach hires a strength coach that he doesn't have some previous connection with. And I know when, uh, like when Andy Reed came in and, uh, uh, you know, Wolfie and Tom Canavy were there, I know they were always kind of a little nervous cause they were like, you know, I'm uh these are Penn state high intensity guys. Andy comes from something else. And I remember Wolfie being like, eventually he'll want to bring in his own guy and that's just kind of how it worked. So I think if you want to potentially have a head job, you got to start, you got to intern, you got to make your your, you know, your connections and your friends and hope that when they get transferred up, they bring you with you.
0: Kier, what do you how could you how would you differentiate like playing the game and then just being a good dude and making pals? <laughs> uh, I would say coaching is the latter.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I was fortunate enough and unfortunate enough to have to learn this lesson very, very early in my career, which is I was pushed towards uh, a job to interview for a job at a a partner team. So the way it works in pro rugby is you have like the top tier team, and then you have a a feeder. Mm -hmm. They sent me to the feeder and said, Hey, if you don't fuck this up, you're going to be the head strength coach in two weeks. So I went and did two weeks. They asked me to interview. And the feedback was, well, we thought, you you know, you technically did a better job in the interview, and you were more knowledgeable, and we're going to give it to this guy. And it was the head coach's best friend, he'd been the best man at his wedding. And I, I learned the hard way that it's not an either or. I used to tell myself the lie that, well, if I'm good enough, I'll get the job. And if I'm knowledgeable enough, they'll have to respect the body of work and they'll have to hire me. But as John said, all things being equal, people want to hire and work with people they know like and trust and all things not being equal, they still want to work with people that they know like and trust. Mm-hmm. So it's those things in my experience that get you through the door, but then it's the quality of work that keeps you there. So it's not an either or, it's, it's both and certainly there are way more good old boys that have great relationships with everybody in the room and they make the room a better place that are terrible coaches than there are rain man phds with the social skills of a leper so if you'd be one be that but i think the best guys have have both and you have to work on both. So I I kind of made a promise to myself over oh, ten years ago, never again am I gonna be the guy with, with the knowledge but not the connections.
1: It's our age old. Uh if you want to have a beer with your uh, you know, with the guy, do you really want to work with him? Well yeah, the, the layover test. Yeah. Can I stand <laughs> this guy for three hours? In a stressful situation? Yeah. Can we go get a beer and actually want to have a sit there and, and shoot the shit and drink a beer with him opposed from like, not nah, I don't drink any alcohol. I'm going to sit over here. and I drank a lot in college. college. I'm good. Yeah. That fucking guy. We had a guy. Um, yeah. We we had an intern uh, that these guys, uh, I wasn't there. They brought it in and I was like, oh, how was it? They're like, I went to go to beer and he's like, ah, I drank too much in college. I'm good. At least follow up with some stories. Or be like, hey, you know what? I'm not a drinker. Let me tell you about the uh, second time I but- woke up with a goat. <laughs> let me buy you guys beers and let me tell you about the second time I got herpes, you know, like shit like that. Like, I, I think there's a way to navigate that. But the problem is, is when you become like throw, throw, uh, you know, things like that, you just seem like a fucking asshole. People don't want to work with you.
2: We actually built this into our, uh, our interview process, of William and Mary. So my boss ended up interviewing for, uh, one of the, the three letter organizations and all they did was give him literally a a coordinate on Google Maps and say, right, see you here next week. So he goes to the job interview and it was like a two-day interview. And it's one of these things that I've learned that I stole from him, which is the longer the interview, the harder it comes for you to not reveal your true self, amongst other things. So when we interviewed, we made it an entire day long And we wouldn't tell people in advance, hey, you're going to be interviewing alongside somebody else. You're going to be competing all day long because ultimately you want to hire somebody that's not afraid to compete, but can still be nice to somebody and cordial, even though they're going for what you want. We -hmm. always eat together. We want to see what you're like as a person. You're going to train together, all that kind of stuff. And then of course, you're going to put them on the spot because just an hour long Skype interview and a resume from, sorry, a recommendation for coach that wants them to get the job. It's effectively worthless.
0: Dude, this – well, this reminds me freaking Callie and I's interview with John. <laughs> Callie. Uh, dude, that's
1: one of my most favorite interviews and one of my, my favorite times. And the best is because we really weren't fucking with you. Uh, yeah, bullshit.
0: So I gotta There's paint, no way we were. I got to paint the picture for okay. Keir. So it's 2012. Uh, Power athletes looking for two new people to, to assist with these traveling seminar gigs. Callie and I were coaching out of a gym in D.C., and uh, we attended a seminar in Philadelphia as we had both attended the original seminar that we were going to teach, attending the second one. And it's like, okay, not the information. Watch how we teach and take notes. Well, also on Saturday night following day one, we go into Philly and we got to follow John around. So he knows the back roads. Okay.
1: So I, uh uh you know, obviously played for the Eagles, um, which is in South Philly and I lived uh, downtown. So like I had a very, very excellent understanding of South Philly and more importantly, the ins and the outs in the streets. And there's a certain way that you drive in Philly, especially at night, which is you don't stop at stop signs. You just kind of slow to observe police, right? Is really what stop means. And there's like a, you know, like especially going through like the bad neighborhoods, you just like if it's 25, you do 35 and you don't stop. You just kind of hit your brakes, see, and you go. And uh, so I didn't know that both Callie and Chris are not what you would consider very like skilled, aggressive drivers. I grew up in Southern California. Uh, like I just go fast. I like the Mosey. Yeah, he, he's like these guys like the Mosey. So I I start by taking him to my favorite uh, South Philly hole in the wall place called Tony Luke's. Right on, um, uh, I think it's on Oregon, and you know, like right underneath the bridge, and uh, they do like these crazy cheesesteaks and all this stuff, and it's it's like you know all the tourists go to Pat's and Geno's, which is like a typical just terrible place in Philly, but like Tony Luke's makes a hell of a sandwich, so I take these guys, and uh, you know, we gave uh, at the time within the Cross of Football lecture, we we're teaching, we we're teaching a lot of paleo, kind of like uh, you know, avoid gluten and you know, you know, basically looking to increase performance through enhancing uh, gut health right the idea of like ramping up immune function so uh needless to say you're not going to tony luke's to ramp up you know efficient gut function so we go in and i think like you know we order stuff and i remember we got like a couple different cheesesteaks whatever so then these guys are like you know thinking that like you know we're it's a test, it's a test. like they were like these hardcore hardcore paleo people that really have loincloths underneath their jeans and we're just trying to like punk them into eating and be like, oh, we got you guys we're paleo people so we order this and they're all kind of freaked out. And so we're like cutting it up into pieces, just letting everybody try. I mean, Brewer was there. Yeah. Uh, Uncle Dave was there. Uncle Dave was there. <laughs> Kate was there. Mm-hmm. Uh The kids were there. Uh, Jamie and Kelly were there. Um And so, I, you know, like we got our kids and the, the hilarious part is in South Philly too. Here's another deal. There's no parking. So people just park in the middle of the median, like in the middle of the road. So that's like a standard Philly thing. You just like basically just park in the middle. So I like pull up, park in the middle. And I remember my wife being like, you can't park here. I'm like, you can park here. Don't worry about it. I've lived here a long time. So we get out and they're like, you just parked in the middle of the street. I'm like, yeah, that's where you park. And uh, so I think they thought I was fucking with them when I wasn't. And um, we go eat and I could tell they're pretty nervous. So then I was like, hey, here's the deal. We're going to hit another spot. Follow me. And I didn't know anything about their driving styles. Mine is fucking 100 miles an hour fast. I lost these guys within like two seconds. They were like, and they thought I was trying to fuck with them, like ditch them. And I'm like, no, 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 that's just how you drive in South Philly. And you've ridden with me since we've been in Philly and it's fucking drive fast and don't look at anybody and don't hit the brakes. Tight butthole. Yeah. And I'm like, especially like now there's been some gentrification last time we were there, but at the time those were fucking dangerous, dangerous places. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we ended up hitting another place. Two, two more. Yeah. Two more. So
0: it's, it's like this long, arduous process. As John mentioned, his wife, kids and a old pal was there. And so it's like John catching up and managing the family. And then you have to fight for opportunity to actually like talk. Be a part of the conversation.
1: And then, so that's an interview in all uh, itself. And
0: then Uncle Dave,
1: who, uh, my buddy Dave is a Navy SEAL. He's still actually, he's a master chief now, 20 plus years in the, in the teams, uh, and just a hellacious shit talker. So he's just fucking writing you guys the entire uh time.
0: So then later in the night, following three, so we eat three cheesesteaks following like this nutrition lecture. (laughs) And then it's, it's sit down and just drink yinglings until essentially you can't and being grilled by a Master Chief Navy SEAL. And so (laughs) John's not even there at this point. uh, Well, yeah, because my kids are pretty young. And uh,
1: my wife's from the East Coast. She's from New Jersey. Uh, So a bunch of her friends live in Philly. So we just had twins. And so she was excited, one, to come to Philly because she was going to – a bunch of her friends still lived in the area, wanted to see the kids. So it was like this weird kind of thing where we were going for work. I was bringing my wife. My kids are pretty young. And like, uh, you know, at the time when we had twins, um, I don't know if for any of those guys that are listening. I don't know. I mean, it, twins is not double the work. It's exponential amount of work. So uh, all of a sudden, like, you know, as much as I would love to have sat down there and grilled you guys and drank beers, managing my wife and the twins was uh, mission number one. Because, as you know, uh, when your wife is extremely stressed out with the kids, everybody's
0: stressed out yeah in a forty five person seminar on top of all this, yeah needless to say, the six hour drawn out interview in which like you only get bite-sized opportunities to converse, uh we got a call back that's all I gotta say, and then here we are today, but like big fan, and we performed some interviews since then and always try to find different ways creatively to like pull some personality out because I mean, there's a lot of downtime mixed with. Just do your job, hard-ass work, and in high expectation. Uh, so, that man, I'm always fascinated with that. So, like, what more? I'm sure you've had the inter- opportunity to interview personally, but then mentor and interview people. Like, what are some cool things that you try to pull out of people in such a short amount of, of time?
2: Well, we uh, <clears throat> we ended up having a list that we collated from a few different sources. So one of the ones that I really liked that I stole from Stanley McChrystal was what would the people who don't like you say about you? Because it requires you to have some kind of self-awareness, vulnerability, uh, you know, and and speak honestly about it. And and also to be okay with the fact that not everybody's going to like you. I think if you spend long enough working in the real world, you'll realize that not everyone is liked by a hundred percent of people. And some of them give these really bad answers, like oh, they would say that I care too much about my athletes. Shut and, up! You're uh, fired. I had, one, I had one Irish guy reply. They would say that I am a uh, a hard headed cunt. <laughs> so that I was very man. good. Yeah, I, um,
1: I thought for the I, I thought for the Australians, the uh, cunt was a term of endearment.
2: It is. It is. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So yeah, I, I, the first time we went to Australia. And like the use of cunt by both men and women, like here in the United States, if somebody drops a C word, usually somebody's going to fight. Uh, and then I was like, as I heard it dropped, I finally like, I remember I tapped Daz and I was like, Daz, uh, you guys are using that a little different. And it's like, oh, no, it's a term of endearment. I'm like, in the United States, uh, you dropped that, or they're going to fight. And he's like, I know we figured that out the first time we were at a bar and I called the dude a cunt. We almost got in a fight. Uh, and I had to explain to these fucking American yokels that in Australia, this is a term of endearment.
2: In Here, terms of the cut uh, limit, probably Australia, Ireland, England, and America—just way down there for sure. Yeah.
0: Have you ever found that out the hard way?
2: Oh yeah! I mean, we had a running joke at William and Mary that I could, or I, I should, donate money to have the HR office named after me.
1: <laughs> uh, what are some common <laughs> fails, especially in the interview process? Like, like what are some just glaring things that you see where you're like, "Fuck, this guy isn't." going to necessarily do well here or more importantly, things that you could help people avoid the pitfalls?
2: So, I mean, it's those. if we were to interview in person, it, they've already passed a lot of those things. So that's what we're trying to tease out with those questions because obviously you, you want to get to the narrowest field possible as soon as possible so that you can really drill deep on people. That was one of them. Another thing I, I'm obsessed with with uh, peter Thiel, so he's the first outside investor in facebook he's he's a friggin weirdo but he wrote this awesome book called zero to one and his thing is all great businesses and uh organizations are effectively built on what is it that you believe to be true that you know to be true that nobody else agrees with you because if you do what everyone else does you get what everyone else got there's no competitive advantage the price is baked in So in order to get ahead of the field, you have to one, be a contrarian and two, have the judgment to know that people aren't doing it just because they haven't thought of it rather than because it's a terrible idea. So we ask people, what is it that conventional strength and conditioning is wrong on? If you stood up in a conference and said this, 99 people out of 100 are going to disagree with you and and make you a pariah. So we'd look for that. We would look for... uh, we would create these mental exercises where we put constraints on people. Say, right, you have 15 minutes a day to train an athlete to make them elite in a sport. What are you going to do? Mm-hmm. And anyone that says any weight room exercise is gone straight away because the answer should be train for your sport. And then if you have a little bit more time, then it would be the field-based stuff. And then it would be lifting and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then when it comes down to, as you mentioned, people people want to feel comfortable they want to feel that there's a good connection, a good relationship, because the right message delivered by the wrong person will fall on deaf ears. So there has to be both in place. Um, and that is actually one of the things that I've struggled with earlier in my career is to bite my tongue a little bit and cement the relationship first before you start to tell people like, oh, you're not good enough at this. This needs to change. Boom, 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 boom. So all those kind of things. But it, it's about, uh, I think cultural fit is, is important. And it is one of those intangibles. Um, And then like a a heuristic, if I'm working with men, I ask myself, would I let this guy date my sister? And if the answer is no, you have to, you have to think twice. If the answer is yes, then yeah. I mean, my sister has terrible taste, but Yeah. (laughs)
1: Ah, uh, that, that goes back to my, one of my favorite lines I ever heard uh, a linebackers coach tell a bunch of linebackers, you guys are playing so, you, you guys are so nice out there. I'll let you date my sister. That was uh, one of the best bags I've ever heard. Linebacker coach say to some linebackers, you guys are so nice out there. I'm going to let you date my sister. Burned. Yeah, that was a good one.
0: Uh Kier, have you ever told, I guess, an interviewee, like, you're not meant to be a coach. Like, this business is not for you. Go try something else. Get out.
2: I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it explicitly, and I can tell you for a fact that, that uh, Terence was told that earlier in his career. He said, you know, you're, you're not meant to do this. And, of course, he, he used it as fuel. Um, and certainly in my career, if, if someone had ever told me, like, All right, this is probably not for you, it would never have even registered in my mind to take that advice on board. I think I've definitely said many times, think very carefully about this. You know, I, I distinctly remember we had a group of interns where they started to drink the Sappuccinos a little bit and it got a little bit hard. And I said, hey, just so you know, it only gets harder after this. Like you're able to put this to bed when you when you walk out the door, you're not taking it home with you. You're not doing these kind of hours. You, you're not about to get fired, all this kind of stuff. So it is going to get harder. And I said, so think very carefully. Is this really... What you want to do, because you don't want to be asked answering this question. No, having invested several years and so on, and one of them quit that day. So, I I would never explicitly say that to somebody, but I'll certainly give them the opportunity to think about it and answer that question for themselves. Because if somebody asked me on Instagram the other day, "How do you know when it's time to move on?" and I said, "When you start asking that question, start asking that question." Yeah, already decided. You've already decided. <laughs>
1: well, it's it's just like in dating. If you're thinking, is she the right one? There's a good chance that probably she's not.
0: We had an intern. This is a number of years ago. And then hosted an open event, Power Athlete Symposium years back. And had Aaron Ausmus, mm-hmm. uh speak. And he he was so passionate about his position, philosophy, and what he was presenting on. Our intern saw that level of passion. So not even like the subject matter. Just saw how committed he was to his craft and realized I, I can't match that. And then stepped away following that event. Yeah. And uh, Fisher. I, it wasn't Fisher. It <laughs> no, was that it. was Fisher, wasn't it? No, it was another dude. Like, exactly. Another dude. I can't even remember it. But, like, his last task was getting his coffee that day. And then it was like, I'm fucking out.
1: <laughs> Peace. Uh, I remember Fisher had a d- design or, uh, who, who still actually, uh, Still hits me up and we still stay in contact. But he had a similar deal where he wanted to get into this and then realized, like, this isn't for me and wanted to get more into, like, websites and systemization. So he came in and just saw something, like, uh, I think he needed to scratch that edge and realize that, hey, this isn't what I want to do.
0: Yeah, and he found a way to contribute and then and found his desire and passion through the media opportunities presented yeah. here, uh, which – I mean, when it comes to coaching and internships, sometimes with some schools, there's not even that opportunity to coach. Like the five coach rule in effect, and you're just standing there, maybe counting reps. Uh, I remember one, like Nick Sabin rule, the uh, assistant coaches on the floor, if there's already five, like the interns are not even allowed to speak or motivate or cheer. Like I'll dig up this rule book for us. Uh, cause it was ridiculous. Uh, needless to say, after a number of weeks, I they ignored it.
2: That's the What's failing. So people say, dress for the job that you want. My advice to interns is work for the job that you want. If you get to the end of an internship and all you've done is act like a house elf for three months, you do the piss test, you clean up, you, you put stuff away. Don't be surprised if that's all you're qualified to do at the end of it. If you want oh, to be yeah. a coach. coach. <laughs>
0: yeah. The, this was at UT and I found a niche with the walk-ons. Just the dudes that weren't getting the coaching. And then yeah. essentially just had a little barbell club on the side and have some fun with that, that group. Um, one of which is now a strength coach. So some connection made there. The, what else do I want to get into? Man, I want to give you the opportunity to highlight the, the strength coach network. So what, what do you have coming up? I know you got a, another course level here premiering. Yeah. Like what, what can coaches expect when they dive into the education and then where is it going?
2: So uh, we we touched on it a little bit before. I think the, the problem with a lot of coach education is that it ultimately doesn't serve the coach. So it's, it's really serving the athletes in disguise, run a bit faster, jump a bit higher, hit a bit harder. That's great. But if your wife fucking hates you and you make 20 grand a year, kind of worthless, So what we've tried to do is that kind of uh, holistic coach development. So absolutely there's going to be, you know, real world education. So our rule is if you make your living getting results with athletes in the real world, you're allowed to present to our members. If you're not, the answer is no. So we have 250-ish hours of, of video lectures on there. We have a discussion forum. So place to bounce ideas off people with regard to strength and conditioning. We've also got, uh, two other things, which I think make us pretty different. One is the career development stuff. So talking about the strategy, if if we said already, the reality is there's a game and you have to play it. So we coach you how to play it. We're going to help you design your resume. We're going to introduce you to people in our network. We're going to arrange meetups. We're going to talk about your strategy for this and that and try and get you a job. And then also the the business of coaching. Is it one of the unfortunate realities of being a coach that you're going to have to probably make money on the side at least once in your career? Yes. Is it going to be smart for you to do that once you get to a certain level? Also, yes. So, (laughs) you know, providing a little bit of information and resources and and helping people to do that is is what we're doing. And then parallel to that, as you mentioned, we have the courses. So the, the distinction that I would make is, With the membership, it's a lot more buffet style. So you come in, you say, right, I'll take a bit of that, a bit of that, a bit of that, a bit of that, and it's more informal. And because we're delivering this on a a monthly basis, we probably don't have as much opportunity to really get into the underlying principles and, and a deep dive. So we put together the long form courses where level one of the fundamentals is 20 hours long. We don't even talk about training until hour eight. So we talk about what is it that we're trying to do? What are the governing principles of sport? What is stress physiology? What are mental models? How do you problem solve? How do you think about thinking as a coach? What is financial literacy? All this kind of stuff. And then we say, right, now let's coach. So that level was for people that aspire to be a coach or they're starting out in their careers. Then, this is the hard truth about coaching, even once you're a paid coach, you're still eating a lot of shit. You know, entry-level coaches make 40 grand some places. That's really tough to do, especially with a family. So the question is, how do you get up to not being one of those people as quick as possible, which is level two. And then level three is once you're wearing the big boy pants, you have the the director's chair. How do you start winning? And those are three really different jobs that we're trying to, to cater to right now with the education.
0: It's awesome. What, what, What are some names that are involved in this project that you could highlight and just give some praise to?
2: Um, Brian Mann, Nick DeMarco, uh, Matt McInnes-Watson. We had a guy from Precision Nutrition, Dominic Matteo. We had a guy do the financial literacy module that has $200 under management. Um, Yeah, we got a whole bunch. I I did a little bit. Um, Jake Tura, Cameron Joss. Uh, um Indiana, just some some really, really good guys.
0: Sweet, man. Sweet. Um I know I'll be running into you this July at, at Jay DeMeo's um the seminar. But where so, where other where in person opportunities can people find to connect with you? We know online, but where are some speaking gigs or in Richmond that people can connect with you in person?
2: Well yeah, I had a bunch of gigs uh lined up. Abroad, so I think I had a couple of seminars lined up that I was going to present at when Corona hit, and then that nixed that. I had one in Ireland, I got one offered to me in Russia, uh, the other week. But yeah, because of the US immigration with foreigners, returning to the country right now is not too hot. So I think the only <laughs> if you leave,
1: I'm- you're probably not coming back
2: <laughs> exactly. So, <Yeah. laughs> right now. July is going to be the only one that I'm going to be there in person because uh, obviously I've got my my kid as well. So probably later in the year I might look at some stuff, but right now, Steve is going to be the, the main one that I'll, so I'll be there.
1: Where are you living presently?
2: In Richmond, Virginia.
1: Oh, in Richmond, Virginia. Okay. And then, how yeah, how yeah. old's the kid? Boy or girl, or what's the deal?
2: He's a boy, Anderson. He he just turned uh, just turned three years old. So he was born. Almost a year to the day that I met his mother. So that was a pretty uh, spicy introduction.
1: <laughs> All right. All right, then. You got anything else,
0: Mr. McQuick? No way. Kira, right. This is awesome, dude. I appreciate your time, yeah. man.
1: Yeah, dude. Thanks for coming on Power Athlete Radio, man. We really appreciate the information. And more importantly, if uh, people want to get a hold of you, uh, what's, the, what's the easiest way on social? Or you know, give us some handles. Give us a few places to, to direct people if
0: they want more information.
2: Low key flex. You can just Google rugby strength coach or rugby strength and conditioning, and I'm normally at the top.
1: <laughs> Sweet.
0: Yeah. And if you like funny videos, he's got such funny videos to show
1: you. Oh, I'm in. Uh, funny note I tried to tag Turley in something yesterday, and you can't tag him in anything anymore because he's made so many outlandish claims with cannabis and COVID that pretty much he's blackballed. So I would assume you're not making those claims. So you'll we'll, we'll be easy to find. But I've, I like even screen capped it and sent it to him. And I was like, yo, man. uh, Big yeah. brother's watching. Oh, yeah. Social media is a motherfucker. So, yeah, cool.
2: All
1: right, man. Well, thanks for tuning in to Power Ethic Radio.
2: Bye. Bye.
0: Now it's time for you to empower your performance. You can find Keir Wenham Flat on Instagram at rugby underscore strength dash coach. Until next time. Bye.
1: Drop on. Driver, driver.